and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. Today's episode is called Life Lessons, and I'll be bringing you three stories that reflect on the ups and downs of life. Before I play you the first story, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain some colourful language. Our first story is from Blue Mountains author Mark O'Flynn. Mark is a much-published poet and fiction writer whose most recent novel was shortlisted in the 2017 Miles Franklin Award. The story we have for you today is called Loaded Dice, and it was published in Mark's collection White Light and Other Stories by Spineless Wonders. Loaded Dice explores the lessons we can learn from the game of Monopoly. It is read by Joel Horwood and was recorded at Knox Street Bar in Chippendale. An incidental character in a story by Morris Lurie is said to have undertaken a thesis on the popular board game Monopoly. I find this disturbing, how life can imitate fiction, because I myself have recently completed such an exegesis, and finding little of academic or theoretical interest in the literature was under the misapprehension that I was doing original research. Not so, it seems. Lurie has pipped me at the post. Monopoly. It is an intriguing topic. Personally, I take something of an analytical approach to the psychosocial metaphors of the game. Let us say, for example, that I am the boot and you are the racing car. Nothing odd there. I like boots and you, you start. After our preliminary circumnabulation of the board, you throw a three plus a five. Euston Road. You buy. I throw a one and a three. Income tax. 10%. I do not mind. Your turn will come. Resign yourself. Sooner or later, everyone has to pay income tax. Your next throw of the dice adds up to five. Whitehall. You buy. I have no anecdote concerning Whitehall. My turn. The dice feel light as a pair of wren's eggs in my hand. At first glance, they seem to display a veritable bevy of dots. Nine. Whitehall. I pay the rent. Your racing car accelerates to the wishing well of the community chest. You draw a card. Advance to Mayfair. Wacko, you crow, and slap down the cash. My boot plods its way to free parking. No joy there. Just tire marks on the road and broken glass in the gutter. You collect $200 as you pass go and promptly invest it in the acquisition of a railway station. Surely you can do no worse than the current government. At the opposite end of the defined world, I land on Fenchurch, but I am a more selective investor and choose not to purchase. I see myself operating at the more upmarket end of the spectrum, which may explain my peak at Mayfair. With a six, you snap up Paul Mall. I tell you the story of how once, when visiting the real Paul Mall, a young English waif begged me for money to buy chips. Instead, I offered her an apple, which she threw at my head. Interesting? No, my go. Oh, I throw a five, and as a consequence, I land and am sent of all places directly to jail. You throw a mere three and are thus in the position of being able to purchase Northumberland Avenue. You do, and place a house on each limb of this purple triunity. Rather than pay the fine, I declare a penchant for chancing my arm. 
Call me wild, call me reckless, but I hope to throw a double and therefore get out of jail free. I do not. Next, you buy the Strand. I throw a one and six. You buy Fenchurch. I throw a six and twirling two. Time enough to mend my broken spectacles with an old band-aid. You buy Piccadilly with all its pigeons. I note, with some satisfaction, your cash flow is looking a bit thin. It's the old boom and bust cycle. I pay the fine. You see how in the brief interlude while I have been languishing on remand, possessing little more than the wits I was born with, you have turned into an all-devouring property mogul, an enemy of the people. You own, let's list them, uh, two railway stations, Euston Road, Whitehall, Paul Mall, Northumberland Avenue, The Strand, Piccadilly and Mayfair. Already a widening social rift has split the good nature and sense of trust that was originally between us. Healthy competition gone sour. I contemplate stealing from the bank, but Durkheim, is it? Uh, it says this is a natural response after a period of incarceration. On my release from prison, I land on one of your estates, with attended development in progress. An outlandish price at this end of the property market. I remember when the neighbourhood amounted to little more than a pile of beans. I still have enough floating capital to pay the rent. From my share of the general booty of $15,140, I have remained a model of frugality. However, I now hate you. <laughs> I want to vandalise all your innocent suits. I want to break your windows, smash your crockery and poison your pets. The game proceeds. The night is long. Your tycoon's empire expands. In my poverty, I plot my leapfrogging way around the board, pausing clumsily on the refuge islands of chance and community chest. I have become a burden on society, a threat to your peace of mind. You move me on. My one simple ambition, to return to my roots, to scrimp and save enough to put a down payment on Old Kent Road, and perhaps a new pair of glasses. Thus, from humble beginnings... But the vicissitudes of life are not so simple. Social justice is a myth. Eventually, I bow to my recidivist nature and return to jail. Safe. In jug, I plot and plan. You think I'm being defeatist? I do acknowledge the point, however, that this game is called Monopoly and not Social Rift. On we go until our needles eye. Thus... You can see the subtle analogies that a game of chance affords the dedicated student. Such a wealth of material cannot be ignored in the cause of research, the poetry of loaded dice and chance. Genetic predisposition versus social engineering. Such issues imply some point of comparison, even bequeath meaning. Let me add as a postscript that at the conclusion of my research and upon the submission of my thesis, which I pray will be published by Routledge at the turn of the decade, I ran from the faculty office screeching for joy and for liberty. I flung my Monopoly board from the nearest balcony, not caring who it struck. Paper money drifting on the wind. Red hotels raining down. The game over. The exegesis over. Welcome the jubilant freedom of ruin. That was Little Fiction's regular Joel Horwood, performing Marco Flynn's Loaded Dice. Joel is a graduate of the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. He recently performed the lead role of Ort Flack in the stage adaptation of Tim Winton's novel That Eye the Sky. The next piece, Directions, 
was written by Wollongong author Erica Woolger. Erica's writing has been recognised overseas in the Fish International Short Story Competition and here in Australia in the prestigious Marjorie Barnard and Josephine Ulrich Awards. Directions looks at the many, often contradictory, sayings used by one family in its everyday life. You may even use some of them yourself. Here's Felix Johnson reading Directions. Our family is obsessed with directions. Sometimes our father says, Well, they've gone south again, referring to his share portfolio. And our mother says, Well, there's another one gone west, if we shatter a cup or vase. I think they mean the same thing, going south or going west. Well, almost the same. Gone west means it's irreparably broken and useless. Not to be confused with go west, young man, for a better life, more opportunities, etc. Gone south means that something has failed, is decreasing in value, or is otherwise rendered defeated, useless. Like my brother. Surely the only male in the world under 60 called Stanley. He's already gone south, and it took him barely 19 years to get there. But he made it, just as our grandfather said he would. Our grandfather said, You're going south fast, my lad. You'll end up on the drug trail, a fast track to nowhere. He said this when Stanley expressed a desire to have a gap year and travel after his first year of uni. I need to find myself, get some direction, Stanley had explained. And I knew he meant, I need to escape from this madhouse, where everyone was more than willing to point him in all directions. Our grandmother said, East, West, home's best, Sonny Jim. You stay here and get your qualifications. This is the best country in the world, but he went south, albeit north, to Thailand, which is part of the east and is northwest of Sydney, where we live. (laughs) Then she said, our evangelical grandmother echoing our grandfather, You're heading south, all right, straight to hell. The Bible says, children, obey your parents. And when our mother came and led her away, she was still quoting, He knoweth the way that I take, which is more than anyone else did. Although not on the drug trail, Stanley does indeed seem to have taken a fast track to nowhere in particular. He's just drifting around somewhat aimlessly, despite our grandparents' confident prediction of his inevitable ruinous route. Stanley slammed the door as he left, and a plate fell off the sideboard and broke in halves. Ah, well, said our mother looking down at two pieces of plain white china stuck against the slate-tiled kitchen floor, then looking up at the door. There's another one gone west. Our great Arnie Midge, called unoriginally the Mouth from the South, because she can talk underwater and lives in Wollongong, down the coast south of Sydney, said of Stanley, He'll be all right, the boy knows which way's up. To which our grandmother replied, It'll be his downfall. I have no idea of the origins of these sayings. It could have something to do with geography. On Atlas maps, north is always at the top. In America, the south, to those living in the north, is suggestive of unpleasant conservative conventions. And to many living in the southern states, the north is evocative of prosperity and pretension. A bit like the north shore of the harbour and the southern suburbs. North, up is good. South, down is not. Who knows? I'm speaking generally, of course, and perhaps now anachronistically. Maybe the eastern and western suburbs would be better examples these days. Other directional phrases my family use are 
the height of excellence and rising up the ladder, father. The depths of despair, mother. One of her friends is often down in the depths of despair. Down to hell in a handbasket and cast down into the pit, evangelical grandmother. So what to make of all this? We're a weird mob. I'd write a story about my family and call it that if somebody hadn't already used the title. I'd do a family tree and say, in my family tree there are lots of nuts. But someone's already done that too. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, that's also been said. That was Felix Johnson reading Directions by Erica Woolger. Felix is an actor living and working in Sydney. He graduated from the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts in 2013. Felix recently travelled to Canada to perform at the International Performing Arts for Youth Conference in Montreal. He had a guest role on Secret City, a new Australian series currently airing on Foxtel, and has a role in the remake of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Our final story today is Chicken by Sydney author Angela Argent. Angela is currently writing a novel set in Prague about the spoils of freedom after the 1989 revolution. In her story Chicken, a brother and sister return to the Australian country town they grew up in, in search of their father. The reunion takes a dramatic turn when father and son face off in their cars after a drinking session. Chicken is performed by Eleni Schumacher and was also recorded live at Knox Street Bar in Chippendale. Nan's fingers drummed against the lilac doorframe one at a time. Pinky ring, rude, index, then thumb, over and over, faster and faster. I was used to seeing her fingers rolling in slow motion. It was how she thought. But today they moved fast and landed hard. It sounded like they might snap. We watched the boys in cars burning up and down the dusty tracks of the highway. She was tracking them like a hawk. The frightening speed and thud of the drumming said everything. She couldn't fathom their antics at all. Nan's neighbour, Old Sal was gaping, open-mouthed from the rickety veranda of the only other house on Nan's mostly sleepy stretch of highway. I noticed him watching Nan at her unfamiliar post, filling the doorway. Nan didn't usually do doorways. Said they were indeterminate places, neither in nor out. Sal seemed exhilarated by her presence, the two cars slicing up his strip of bitumen with a sideshow. Nan's cursory nod said she'd noticed him, but couldn't care less about the nosy old bugger. I'd known Nan all my life. I could sense what she was thinking. Let him watch. Let him snigger. Those senseless boys of hers were playing chicken, and they weren't stopping. They were mad as a bucket of cut snakes. But what could she do to stop them? Sal gripped the receiver, cord from the phone in the hall pulled tight as a ribbon. No doubt he'd called the police, but the whole town knew that the local cop was a coward. Nan said the cop would have claimed he was needed right where he was, 40 kilometres away in the next town, a good safe distance down the highway. Tragic bloody wimp, she called him. Sal would have known my father's clapped-out blue valiant by sight, but not the brilliant white beamer my brother had hired in Melbourne. We hadn't set foot back here in ten years. I suspected he'd brought the flash new car as a statement. Earlier this morning, we'd wandered the main drag, passing as city strangers. Me and Doc Martens all wrong for the stinking heat, my brother in trendy Ray-Bans. 
Being Sunday, the one shop in town was closed. Local girls in the street eyed up my brother like grazing bovines, but the look on his face said they were ugly slags. I, on the other hand, was stoked to be here, impressed even with the size of the sky, endless and wide. And I would finally see Dad, who could wiggle his ears and laugh like a wolf from what little I remembered. I must have been gaping up at the sky like some slow kid when my brother cursed loudly under his breath. He muttered something about a tin pot hole of a town, that he was here only for me, and even then only because I'd nagged and nagged him. Something about the Alco thug and the fucking hide of him to pour shit on mum. When I asked him to repeat what he'd said, he almost shouted, She's worth ten of him. This place is clapped out and pathetic, a dead redneck pit of despair, so fucked up it makes me want to stop breathing. Why the fuck did you want to come here? Old Thal must be peeved. The roar of the cars braking and skidding had stopped him pacing the length of his veranda. Earlier today, when I'd walked all the way from the pub to Nan's, he'd been ranting, praise be and hallelujah, in worship of a solitary cloud. The heat had been rising from the ground like cartoon vapour. He'd always been pretty bonkers, but Nan said that city kids with umbrellas shouldn't take the mickey. It hadn't rained here all year. For more than an hour now, they had been driving at each other, two cars on a desolate stretch of red ribbon. Again and again and again, head on down the middle, at 1.50 an hour, fiery red dust flying with their tempers. Seeing anything through that haze would be an achievement. Neither of them was taking their foot off the throttle. They'd tilt the wheel only a fraction and only at the very last second. Then arc huge donuts through fields of wheat, birds scattering in their wake back to where they started. It's hard to say who wanted to kill or die more. They both seemed determined. They should never have gone to the pub together, both terrific haters. I didn't know Dad, but now I sensed they knew each other well enough to understand there was nothing good left to say to each other. I'd never seen my brother so messed up. Mum was their only real topic of conversation. It's mid-afternoon now. The air is thick with red dust and the wide-open sky has gone missing. It's hard to breathe. Dad's car has turned matte purple and my brother's orange. Both are caked in the dust that's flying. Near the endless fields of kneeling wheat, wild sunflowers are turning their heads away. Even they look disgusted. Get this into your pup, my grandfather grunts. He thrusts the green base of a watermelon the size of a mixing bowl in my face as I peer at the road through the louver windows. I flinch in response. I hadn't heard him come in from the yard. He seems to have aged way too fast in the ten years we've been living in Melbourne. His watermelon welcome suggests he's forgotten I've been away at all, like I'm still four and we live just around the corner. Now that he's inside the house, I expect he will take over my grandmother's vigil. She is still standing tall, willing them to stop. But for now, it seems that the act of serving earth-warmed melon is the most that he can offer. I wager that the bowl in my hands feels warmer than the tea he will slurp from his saucer after dinner. I think of the thigh-high, cavernous cracks in the red soil and the effort it must have taken his skinny old legs to dislodge this beauty. Mad dogs, he growls, as he waddles down the hall to the sleep-out at the back of the house. The fly-screen door slaps closed. Nan will give him a serve later when she sees the red bandy footprints leading down the length of the house. It'll be on for young and old. The melon is leaking warm rivers down my wrists, and the flies are landing faster than I can wave them away. Warm melon is truly disgusting. I head for the fridge. The kitchen is at the back of the house, away from the road. I set the melon on the sink and rearrange a few things to clear some space. Even back here, the shriek of cars drowns out the low hum of the fridge. The contents of Nan's fridge reminds me of all the small horrors of my charmed existence here. 
As her only daily visitor, as soon as I could stand, I had to collect the eggs from boxes positioned well above my head with upstretched, trembly fingers, hens swooping down at my face, clucking and pecking, digging their talons into my untied hair, intent on protecting what was theirs. I'd escape the coop in a terrible hurry, sometimes dropping the basket of eggs and smashing them, spraying yolks all over my ankles. Nan would be waiting at the rainbow-painted bench on the back veranda, slapping her ample sides, face concertinaed with laughter. She took the loss of the eggs in her stride, pulling me close to her chest. The safest place in the whole world was the warm space between her humongous boobs, face planted, listening to her sing in her lilting Devon accent. Whatever was wrong, the thud of her heartbeat and her song dissolving through warm layers of fat always calmed me down. I thought about how it wouldn't have been a bad place to dive right now, just to silence the messed up scream of those car engines revving. They weren't showing any signs of giving up or slowing down. Their noise was drowning the real world out. I decided to centre my concentration on the fridge. When I was smaller, I couldn't reach the eggs. The fridge was always stuffed with food I didn't like, but that didn't matter. Nan fed me on love, and I knew I was the favourite among her enormous tribe of grandkids. I was the only one who got to wear her huge bra folded in half as a helmet. Nan and I spent our days here together while Mum earned cash for our escape at the telephone exchange on the main street. She pushed party line plugs into a board from five in the morning till late afternoon, trying her damnedest not to listen in to the savage small town gossip in which our family all too often featured. And now the screaming cars would keep local tongues wagging for months. I wonder how long it will take for the shame of today to make it through the rumour mill to Mum in Melbourne. I give up on the fridge and walk down the corridor to Nan's room open the door and sprawl lengthways across her saggy bed. I want to be swallowed up in here. I tug the Walkman from my pocket and push play. I want to make their noise go away. I hear livid up belting from the headphones before they make it to my ears. All the good memories I have of this place are being replaced with the new awful sense that my family is insane. The screech of tyres stops suddenly. I hear the sound of two sets of running footsteps pounding up the front steps. One set is light, one heavy. I move away from the bed, counting out the five steps to the front door in my head. It used to be ten. My puny brother, arriving just ahead of my brick shithouse of a father, shouts at me. Michelle, get in the fucking car. We're heading back to Melbourne. No, get in the bloody Valiant now. We're going home. I turn to watch Nan meet their eyes, the fingers of both hands still drumming against her hips. You can both bugger off, she says, tenacious. Shelley's not going anywhere today. They glare at her, but she won't give in. She stands her ground like a mountain. She isn't budging and they're not coming in. I should run and hide in the back paddock shed. That's the deal in situations like this. But all I can think about is how strange it is that either of them would expect me to go anywhere with them. My father used the word home to mean his dilapidated shanty pitted with fist holes. My only memory of it is from lunchtime today when I'd sat in his kitchen for less than an hour. On the way out, I'd seen my old cat Timmy, apparently long dead and rotted, through the floor beams of the veranda. I could remember Timmy all right, just not Dad. That wasn't my home and never had been. It was the shack of horrors my sisters and brother had described and the place Mum had run from. Thank Christ she had the decency to take us with her. After what seems like a very long time, I see Dad and my brother scuttling back down the steps. I feel good inside for half a minute. Nan is awesome. No one messes with Nan. I'm trembling and I feel stupid for having begged my brother to bring me here. This isn't much of a holiday and Dad doesn't seem like the kind of lost parent anyone would want to claim. It's not as though no one warned me. 
And now my brother is no longer my favourite big loopy beanpole, tarred with the same mad brush as Dad. He isn't so awesome. I hear them hurling hate and swear words. They're both loud and pathetic. And then they're back in their stupid cars again, driving too fast and swerving. Before our exodus to Melbourne, Mum would drop me off at Nan's place to the smell of dissolving chop fat and the sound of tea being slurped from my grandfather's saucer. He'd smash the plates and saucepan together in a suds-filled sink. I'd dry the few unbroken plates with a holy tea towel and look up to examine the ear fuzz sticking out from his hairless head. Next, we'd heat water in the aga and prepare to wash the clothes. While he waited for the water to heat, he'd scrape under his nails with a handmade knife. Absolutely gross. He'd hoist my grandmother up onto the bench and growl, Sing to me, love. Sing to me. And she would arrange herself delicately like Greta Garbo and sing and sing, her fingers tapping the beat. Ranga the cat would slink around my ankles, rub her cheeks against me, then settle on my lap. Purring mutt, my grandfather would say proudly, grunting his approval. In the long afternoons after mornings spent battling the chickens, Nan would ask, How goes the time? She never expected us to answer. Pop and I would make ourselves scarce for a while so she could write things down. Nan had all the stories in the world because she knew what made broken people keep trying to glue themselves together. Some days she wrote about mum and dad, but gave them names that belonged to someone else. She always said it wasn't easy remaining a stranger in a small town for 60 years, seeing and hearing nothing. But I think she enjoyed her outsider view of things. Apart from her mornings with me, she spent her time guarding her distance. The sudden high-pitched screech of brakes outside reminds me what I've done. We're not here to see Nan. She visits at least twice a year in Melbourne. My brother brought me here because I'd insisted on coming. He and Dad are fuelled by hate and it's my fault. I wanted to see a parent I could barely remember. It was me who craved a knowledge of him that was more than rumour. I was beginning to understand Nan's brand of logic. Sometimes keeping your distance is better and safer. Nan and I hear a semi-trailer howling in the silence. Then a protracted screech and skidding, and soon after the shudder of heavy metal grunting trying to slow. The red dust billows higher than before, burning into the receding tract of sky like a firecracker exploding. My brother has quit driving and is parked up in a ditch on Nan's side of the highway. I see him clearly, window down, hands on the wheel, forehead resting there too. His shoulders are shuddering up and down. I want to go to him, but I like him a bit less now, now the magic of him is leaving. I feel so guilty. He wasn't ready for this encounter. That we are here is my fault and it will be forever. Nan isn't drumming. She's holding me to her, her short little arms chaining me in. About time, girlie. Your brother has decided to live. I share her relief, but I feel stupid. It had never occurred to me that living involved making a decision. Then time really does seem to still. I track the purple valiant and reach for Nan. She grabs me tight around the waist and rests her head against my shoulder. I notice she is so tiny, so much shorter than me now. The oncoming semi is shuddering hard in a last-ditch effort to stop. The car is on the wrong side of the road. It isn't braking. If anything, it is travelling faster and faster. We watch from the doorway together. The valiant is sucked under the semi, wolfed down hull in a single bite. The sound is delayed by the distance. When it finally comes, we hear the gnarling cannibal noise of metal gnawing through metal. That was Little Fiction's regular, Eleni Schumacher, reading Angela Argent's Chicken. That's all we have time for this week. 
We hope you've enjoyed the stories in today's Life Lessons episode. If you've enjoyed today's stories and would like to find out more about the authors and the actors featured in Little Fictions On Air, go to the Spineless Wonders website at www.shortaustralianstories.com.au. If you would like to tell us what you think of our program, we very much welcome your feedback on our show. So please head to the 2RPH website, www.2rph.org.au, and leave a comment. Little Fictions is brought to you by Sydney short story publisher Spineless Wonders. This episode is produced by Bronwyn Meehan and our sound engineer is Scott Harrison. Our theme song, A Tune, is written and performed by Annie Vidler. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. Do join me next time for more Little Fictions. Little Fictions.